Uh, thank you all, as always, for, for being here. I know uh, with this weekend, I know a lot of people are either on vacation, traveling, or I know some are sick. Have you all seen the illnesses coming back these last couple of weeks? It's amazing. And so through school or through whatever it may be, and uh, some are just in various places. So uh, we need to pray for those who are not around and who are traveling. Uh, we are going to be today looking uh, another week on Irresistible Grace, which we started last Sunday. This will probably be our last week on Irresistible Grace. I mean, there might be some overlap in the following weeks. This will probably be our last week on the eye in the tulip. And then we plan to spend at least two weeks on the perseverance of the saints. And then probably have a, have a week at the end where we might uh, summarize some things, maybe take some questions that haven't been asked or, or deal with some things that haven't been addressed directly yet. But uh, we are definitely on the back end of the series. We, we've covered the, the bulk of what there is to cover so far. Uh, Greg, uh, would you pray for us and then we'll jump in? Yeah, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the goodness that you show us on a daily basis, Lord, just generally in terms of our life and our health, uh, Lord, the fact that we can be here right now with a sound mind to just study your word and understand it. We thank you even more, God, for the grace of salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he bore in his body the full penalty for our sins. Uh, Lord, so that we know there is nothing left for us to suffer in terms of wrath and judgment. God, we're thankful that he intercedes for us, uh, and it is a sure intercession. We don't have to doubt that any of his prayers will, or we don't have to worry that any of his prayers will fall to the ground because they won't. Um, God, we're thankful for so great a salvation as we are able to, to study right now uh, in Sunday school, uh, Lord, so popularly known as the tulip, but God, really, it just is a reflection of what your word teaches. Uh, Lord, I pray today as we consider the effectual call, irresistible grace, God, that we would be further humbled and yet built up in our faith in, in mighty ways. Lord, as we see your sovereign work in our lives to bring us to faith, uh, Lord, I pray that if, if we are tempted to boast that we would turn away from that, uh, Lord, and we would turn all praise to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to uh, take a moment here to uh, compare and contrast. I don't know if you'll be able to see. That's not huge font there, but uh, we're going to walk through just briefly to overview the five points of Calvinism and the five points of Arminianism. And uh, Greg, can I ask you just just brief summary comparing the, the first point of Calvinism with the first point of Arminianism? Can you give us just a quick bird's eye view of what is taught here? Yeah. So obviously, as we've seen, the scriptures teach that man is totally depraved. Again, that doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we could be, but there's no part of us that is untouched by sin. Even our wills, our desires, everything is tainted by sin. Um, and so left to ourselves, we will only act according to that depravity, which is we will not seek after God. We will not pursue what is truly good, what is truly right. We will not come after God on his own terms. Um, we might want to set up our own terms, but that doesn't count. Um, so that's total depravity. The, the Arminian objection to the Reformed teaching, um, we say human ability, libertarian free will. We want to make sure we, we do acknowledge they said grace was necessary for anyone to believe. They didn't say they weren't Pelagians in the sense that God, man has no need of grace for help. They didn't teach that. Um, and so their, their doctrine of prevenient grace means grace comes before and gives an ability. It kind of brings us all back to this neutral point. We're kind of like we're Adam and Eve or where we can say yay or nay to God. Um, and so obviously a, a huge difference here though in this point because they say 
because of prevenient grace, everybody has the ability to respond um, when, as we've seen, Scripture clearly teaches, um, grace is either fully effective or it's not at all. Um, and so the, the mediated position they have of, of human ability, libertarian free will, uh, one, it doesn't hold up under its own weight. Two, it doesn't reflect what the Scripture says about our ability to respond. Um, the, and you can't talk about one of these without talking about the other. That's the crazy part right, the more right. we, we do this. So we think about that libertarian free will that the Arminians argue for, and so many today do. Um, it's basically, as, as we've said so many times, there, it comes down to the final decisive element in our salvation is not God, it's us. They believe we have the ability to be that decisive and determinative when it comes to our salvation. And again, while I think in their better moments, they would say, well, we still give glory to God. We still praise God for that. At the end of the day, they're robbing God of glory because God couldn't complete his work without their help. And again, they don't, we, you don't want to say it that way. I know they wouldn't, but that's essentially what it is. God's saving grace, God's saving work in Jesus can do nothing for you unless you, by your libertarian free will, accept it. And so um, God really can't save anybody. We're the ones who save ourselves by using our libertarian free will in order to choose Christ. Yeah, and, and Greg mentioned the word Pelagianism. And if that's not as familiar to you, this goes back to like the fourth century. This is way back in the day. Uh, and uh, this is St. Augustine is debating with a guy named Pelagius. And Augustine is teaching along the lines of what we're teaching here, there's going to be some significant differences with Augustine on certain things, but Augustine is teaching a strong view of God's sovereignty and salvation, and his opponent is Pelagius. Pelagius was not an Arminian. He was far further away from the Bible than Arminianism. He would say, you don't even need God's grace to be able to choose what is right, that you're born in a state like Adam, you're created like Adam and Eve. There, there is no total depravity. There's no original sin. You're born essentially innocent. And I always want to ask Pelagius, then why is the track record of human beings 100% failure on this? <laughs> if, if everyone's born innocent, why does every single person obviously and clearly sin from the earliest days of our lives? But he, he believed we did not need God's grace to choose the good. Now, Arminianism says we do need God's grace, but God's grace is not sufficient to bring about our right decision. Uh, God's grace is necessary, but our decision is the final place where, where the buck stops. For point two, we'll go through these a little bit more quickly. Number two, unconditional election versus conditional election. Uh, again, the question is, does God look down the quarters of the time of time and see who is going to choose him of their own free will, and does he therefore choose those people? That would be conditional election, which is what Arminianism teaches. Or does God elect apart from any conditions met in us, which is clearly what we've been arguing for in these weeks. For number three, with the atonement, uh, unlimited atonement here for Arminianism would say that Jesus died for all in the exact same way. Jesus died for everyone in the exact same way. And we would argue biblically, there are a whole bunch of passages that we've seen that argue for a particular uh, aspect to the atonement where Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and on and on and on. So we think that there is a special way in which Jesus died to secure the salvation of his elect. Number four, irresistible grace versus resistible grace. Um, we would say that when God chooses to regenerate our hearts, we will willingly choose him. Uh, but in the Arminian system, God's grace is ultimately resistible, which means God, I mean, again, I'm, I'm saying it in a way that, that may sound unfair, but I think it's true to what is said in, in this. So to underline where we are, 
resistible grace down here. Uh, with resistible grace, the argument would be that God can do all that he is capable of doing to try to win you to himself and still fail. That's according to the Arminian system. God can do, he can pull out all the stops. He can work as hard as he can through provenient grace and providence, but God cannot ultimately see to it that for sure person X trusts Christ. It ultimately depends on person X. Uh, whereas in, in the Calvinist system, God has the final say with his, with his regenerating grace. And uh, Greg, the last one here, perseverance of the saints versus the alternative view. What, what is going on here? Yeah, perseverance of the saints, um, more detailed way of saying it historically is perseverance of the saints in good works and obedience and faith or something like that. Meaning those whom God has chosen, effectually called, um, will persevere in faith until through death and into glory. Um, there's no possibility, biblically speaking, for a genuinely saved person who's been born again, who has the Holy Spirit, the law written on their hearts, for whom Christ died, for whom Christ intercedes. There is no real possibility that any one of them could ever fall away and lose the benefits that they had received in Christ. Okay, it doesn't mean believers never sin, that believers never struggle, or even go through seasons of struggle or sin, but it is saying at the end of the day, no genuine believer who, again, keeping in mind the whole system that we've been looking at, no genuine believer can fall away. They persevere. The flip side of that, that I know we're going to talk about, is another P, the preservation of the saints. So if you get to, if you, you might start worrying, well, does that mean it's all up to me to persevere? And if I don't persevere, you know, it's, it's all the pressures on me. We also have alongside perseverance, these parallel promises of God preserving us, keeping us, not leaving us, um, strengthening us, renewing us, all of that. So God preserves his people actually so that they persevere. Preservation comes before perseverance. And we, we, we keep on pushing forward in the Christian life because of those those promises. The, the flip of that, or the, the alternate for the Arminian view, um, some of them maybe originally had said, we're not sure whether or not you can genuinely fall away, genuinely lose your salvation. Um, it's a lot more common today, like with free will Baptists um, and more Arminian groups, I think like the Wesleyan tradition, um, the Nazarenes and all that. They, they do believe it is possible. They, they say it's, it's not like happens every day, but it is very genuinely possible that if you have been actually saved, you can forfeit that salvation and still go to hell. Even if at one point you've been called, you've, you've, you've trusted Christ and you've followed him and all that, like I say, you can be genuinely saved and then become genuinely unsaved. Um, and again, we're going to get to that next week, but I, I just want to preface it by saying, if that were the case, why even bother? Because there's no reason. Because John MacArthur said, and we've said this before, if I could lose my salvation, I would um, and amen and amen to that. Yes, no, that's good. We need God's uh, grace in order to, pre uh, to prevent us from falling away. Um, okay, so just a little bit of overlap with last week. We talked about God's effective saving call. Remember last week we distinguished the general call, which is anytime you tell someone to trust Jesus, that's the external or general call. Does it always save somebody? I wish it did, but obviously it does not. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit's call within us, his saving, sovereign, effective call, what the Puritans called the effectual call of God. How often does that succeed in, in, in its call? It's a 100% success rate. And just to remind you from, from last Sunday, I think the clearest verse is right here, Romans 8, 29 and 30. I think if you want one verse to just pin this whole doctrine on, it's so clear right here. Those who be predestined, he also called. 
Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So again, perseverance of the saints is clearly here because do you see if someone is justified, are they going to go to heaven? Yeah, so if God justifies you, if you're truly born again and justified, you will be glorified. There's no falling out on this list of the golden chain. But also, everyone who is called in this verse is also justified and later glorified. So this means the call here cannot be just simply you telling your friend to trust Jesus because they may or may not be justified. This is a sovereign call that brings about faith and justification, and it also ensures future glorification. So I want to look at a few verses. This should be really quick. Uh, before, if, if you want to turn to a text, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. But before we get to that one, I'm just going to throw a few on the screen quickly just because I don't think we've looked at some of these yet. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 1, you can look on the screen here, Paul talking about his own conversion in Galatians 1. He says, but when he who had set me apart, when was Paul set apart? Before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, etc. So was Paul, did God have a plan for Paul before he, he was born? And did God choose at a specific moment to call Paul sovereignly to himself? And was Paul going to say, when Jesus appeared from heaven, was Paul going to go, eh, I don't think so. I think I'm going to go do something else. No, that was not going to happen because Jesus was going to sovereignly call uh, Paul to himself. Look at, uh, in fact, Greg, you reminded me of this one last Sunday, or last week we talked about this in Acts 2. We won't read the whole text. This is, remember, Peter calls the people on Pentecost to believe in Jesus. Remember, this is the same group who 50 days earlier had done what? Crucify, crucify him, right? Some of the same people are in this crowd that were in that crowd a month and a half ago. And look at the end of this, verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children... And all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who's going to be saved ultimately? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls sovereignly to himself. Later in the same chapter, Acts 2.46, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, why would it say the Lord added to their number those who are being saved? Because God was calling them savingly to himself over and over again. Again, later in Acts, we looked at some of these verses in the past. It says the Gentiles heard the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's the sovereign call. God appoints you to eternal life. He sovereignly calls you through the gospel. And the response that you have is that you believe in Jesus. Acts eleven eighteen. In the middle of the verse, then to the Gentiles also, God has what? Granted repentance that leads to life. So repentance itself is a gift from God. We'll look at this later, that God grants. So faith and repentance are gifts that God gives. He doesn't give them to all. He gives them to undeserving some, to his people, his sheep, his true, his true bride. One commentator says of that verse, the claim that God has granted repentance implies that God gives the Gentiles not simply the possibility of repentance, but what? Repentance itself. God doesn't just give the option. He actually gives the repentance itself. And another one, Greg, uh, you might want to comment on this one because you mentioned this again the other week with Lydia. Yeah. Can, you, can you say a word about these verses here? Yeah, so we're familiar as Paul's out preaching the gospel in a number of different places. Uh, he's in Thyatira. Um, and it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. She's a Gentile, and a worshiper of God was simply a, a Jew or a non-Jew, a Gentile, who acknowledged the God of Israel but didn't become fully Jewish. Um, so as Paul's preaching and teaching, it says the Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, the word, the ESV here, I wish was a little stronger than it is. Other translations say to give heed to. Um, it means to like embrace with your heart, to like to, to acknowledge as, yes, this is true and I should, I should acknowledge this. Um, so it's basically, she's listening to Paul. God opens her heart and what's the effect of God opening her heart? She believes the message and receives Christ. And so it's, it's not, um, again, it's not the, the possibility. God, you know, brought her to this neutral point where she could say yes or no. God opened her heart and she believed. And so we, we can say, and I think we should pray, when we pray for people that we know aren't Christians, Lord, open their hearts. That's exactly what God did here. Again, let the scripture direct how we pray. Let it direct, you know, the shape of our prayers. God says, the scripture says God opens hearts. We need to pray God would open hearts. Why? Because if he does, a person will believe. And we got to, you know, read that alongside of, you know, 2 Corinthians, when God shines in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's what happened to Lydia. She saw the glory of Christ. She was awakened spiritually to his glory, to his person, and she was captivated by that beauty and that glory. And so she paid attention. She gave heed to what Paul said. And just a story comes to my mind. Uh, Peter Bailey, I'm not going to embarrass you too much, but I'm teaching Peter's class right now at Westminster this year. I get to have them. They're seniors, and it's a great class. I, I have two, there's two groups, uh, one grade level, but two classes. And this goes back several years ago. It may have been four years ago, Peter, but your class, there was a day where Mr. Edgar and I, Jerry Edgar and I, we call him Mr. Edgar at school, Jerry here, I get all confused. So um, uh, when Jerry switched classes with me on one particular day, and Peter's class, I, I don't know if, I think Peter was there that day, I can't remember who all was in that class that day or if you were there that particular day, but a good group of Peter's class came in, and they were probably eighth or ninth grade at the time, and I shared my testimony. I've shared my testimony a hundred times at school here. I shared a lot. I shared my testimony. And you can imagine, this is, what, this is what happens anytime you share your testimony or, or talk about the gospel with any group of people. Do, do you look around the room and see some people a little bit bored, a little bit kind of like, oh, why am I here sitting here? You know, that kind of feel. You see some of that, right? In, in, in a Christian school, you're going to see that. But then you also see some students who are really attentive. And, you know, what, what is making this difference here? Why, why is one person kind of glazed over? And why is one person on the edge of their seat? They're hearing the same message. Like, what's going on? And then class ends. And I dismissed the class. And probably for a lot of them, it was just like another day, and they walk out the class door. And there's one student, Peter's friend, Trevor. I'm going to embarrass Trevor. He's not here right now, but Trevor's there. Trevor is quietly sitting in the corner of the room. I've hardly ever spoken to him before. I, I didn't know him. I don't even know if I knew his name at the time. He walks up to introduce himself to me at the end of class, and his head is down, and I can see tears are in his eyes. That is not a normal experience after Bible class, okay? And, and here he is, a ninth grader maybe. He comes up, he's got tears in his eyes. And he's asking me about my conversion. He said he's troubled about his own state with the Lord. He's not sure where he is. He says, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? So I, I, he was late to his next class, but I thought this was a good reason to be late to your next class. Okay, maybe give him a note. I don't know, I probably gave him a note or something. I was like, okay, Trevor, we got to talk for a second here. So it's just Trevor and I in my room. And I shared with him, I said, Trevor, you need to plead with the Lord to open your eyes to the beauty of Jesus Plead with the Lord to open his word to you, to make it real to you, to give you great faith to believe. Plead with the Lord. And I said, don't just make it like a one-time magical sinner's prayer, which this country has been haunted by and the repercussions of the sinner's prayer movement. Here's what I said. I said, pray, not one magic bullet prayer. Pray until what happens? Until your heart changes. Pray until the Lord opens your eyes. And now listen, I, I, I haven't talked to Trevor about this in probably a year, but we did talk about it about a year ago. And he, according to his own words, 
for about, it sent him into about, I don't know, if it was a 10 or 14 day uh, struggle where he was horrified he was lost. And I think he was lost. And he was pleading with the Lord to save him. After about 10 or 12, 14 days, he believes the Lord truly converted his heart and that he's a believer. And I, I think Peter and others would, 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 would give testimony. Is Trevor a changed man, Peter? He, he is a changed man. And I think that you can date it back to that very moment. So I, we know what these stories are like, don't we? You have people listening and suddenly one person's heart is more attentive than the other person's heart. Suddenly, her heart is open to give heed to what Paul said. Suddenly, Lydia cares a great deal about this strange Paul character and what he's saying about this strange Jesus man. Like, what is, suddenly she's all in. She's, she's invested. Soon after, she's converted and baptized, and, and uh, she's influencing her whole household uh, to trust in the Lord. So, I mean, we see this in real life, and this is what we pray for. Like, Lord, if it's just you talking to your friend or me talking to my friend sharing the gospel, what's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. But if the Lord opens the heart to give heed to the message, then regeneration happens. And then you get, all glory goes back to God. But it just shows you how dependent we are on God in, 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 this, in this task. So one more note here before we get to 1 Corinthians. A couple verses from Romans on effectual call. A lot of Paul's intros to his letters have this word. I think we need to reintroduce the called back into Christian vocabulary Okay, this is not like a rant, uh, and Greg, I think you'll agree with me on this. Um, I think we almost always use the word call to refer to a vocational calling. Like God has called me into the ministry, or he's called me to be a missionary, or he's called me to teach in the school, or he's called me to be you know, a nurse or whatever. Those are all great things. I'm not saying the Lord does not work it through those circumstances. But what I'm saying is Paul does not use the word that way. When Paul uses the word, when he says you are the called ones, he means what? The ones God sovereignly rescued from your sins by divinely calling you to himself. And just look at this here. How does Paul call the Christians in Rome? He says, you who are called to belong to Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Uh, a little later in Romans, he speaks about in the presence of God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And we could go on and on. I'll give you just two more. I can't, I can't resist it. Then we'll, we will get to 1 Corinthians. Two more real quick. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. He's talking to the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, etc. And he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's an effective call. And God gets the credit. 2 Peter 1.2, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm, to make sure your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So to confirm that God truly has chosen me and called me from death to life. So let's go to 1 Corinthians. Greg, can you say a word as we get to the beginning of this chapter, the, even just the first two verses? of? Uh, could you read those for us, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2? Yeah. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And verse 6 as well. Verse 6, all right. Oh, um, excuse me, verse 9. I'm, verse I'm all nine? over the place. Okay. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, I mean, I do think we should probably use this word more than we do. Uh, I think that we've tangled it up with sort of calling on certain lifestyle choices and things like that, but I think that to speak of it as God's sovereign call to rescue us is a healthy word to recover. Yeah, and I think it's important. I mean, we want to be humble and gracious how we go about this, but 
we have to be, be willing to, um, what's the word, uh, destroy sacred cows, mm. like terminology and phrases that are just so common in our Christian vocabulary that may or may not actually be rooted in Scripture. I mean, it, it is one of those things, want to be, because you can be a jerk about this, um, right. or you can just be like, look, let's do our best to stick with the terminology and the language Scripture gives us. Um, and if Scripture doesn't always speak of our call being just what we're going to do with our lives, but specifically, you know, our call to salvation, then we kind of have to reorient how we think. We have to, re, we have to adjust um, our, our language and our terminology, but that's a good thing. That's being conformed to Scripture. That's our mm-hmm. Reformation heritage, by the way, um, is let Scripture shape us, not the traditions of the church, not that church history is unimportant or anything like that, but Scripture has the final word. And if we want to be conformed to Christ, we have to be conformed to Scripture. And if Scripture uses call that way, then we need to use call that way. And I think you're right. Like It uses that. Once you, once you kind of you know, allow yourself to see it, like you're saying, like it's the church is called the called. Like that's actually very common. Very common. It's a very common way, along with saints and a few other things, of referring to the people of God. And if so, Scripture refers to God's people as that. So should we? I, I've heard y'all may have. Some of you may have heard this. John Piper has a quote about the sovereign call. He's trying to give an analogy. Like, what's an analogy for God's sovereign call that always accomplishes what it calls for, right? And, and this is a, kind of a funny one to me, but imagine you're taking a Sunday afternoon nap. Now, it is about time for, you know, the time we have church, it's, everyone tells me this is kind of Sunday afternoon nap time, but let's say that after you get home from church, we'll take it, we'll wait till then. Let's say you're, you're home this evening and you're taking your Sunday evening nap, which might mess you up for going to bed tonight, but you're, you take a little nap and uh, you're, you're laying there on the couch and you're out. And now, don't you love it if a family member does this to you? What if somebody walks right over to the couch? You've had this happen. Someone leans right to your face and says, wake up. Now, I know you love that experience. Other than the fact that you are immediately angry at the world when that moment happens, <laughs> you're like, oh, don't do that. But what just happened was that call, what did it do? It created what it asked for. Wake up, and those actual words woke you up. The actual words created what they're calling for. And that's a funny kind of way of thinking about it. But if we were dead in sin right? Like Lazarus laying there dead. Jesus said, wake up. Jesus said, come to life. And that call actually created life, just like it did for Lazarus. We were laying there dead, and Jesus says, come forth, and we come spiritually to life, and we, we, we come to Christ. So the call creates what it commands. And uh, it's hard to come up with analogies, but I thought that was a funny one. And Lazarus wasn't just dead. He was like dead, dead, dead. <laughs> like he was in the tomb several days. His body was starting to... to um to rot, to yeah, decompose, the sister says that, you know, it's going to be a terrible order. stench. So it's, you know, it's not like he was just revived. He was dead and Jesus restored his body in full and all his capacities and he came out. Amen. All right. So let's look at verse 18. I know we've, we've looked at some of these verses in the past, but on this topic, it's hard to, to ignore these. First Corinthians 1 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now just stop for a second. It's on the bottom of the screen here as well. You got folly to some, and to others the cross is the power of God. Now do you see here, if you've got some, to some people the gospel is boring, it's silly, it sounds like a mythology or a fairy, fairy tale, like how can you actually believe a guy was born of a virgin and died and rose? So to some people the cross is folly, 
I think I told you one time when I was in college, I shared the gospel with a guy who was in my class who was an Orthodox, it was, well, he was Jewish, but kind of not really serious about his Judaism. But when I shared the gospel, just the basic gospel message right outside our classroom door, he said, it sounds like you're describing the plot of a video game. <laughs> like, it just sounds silly. It just, a virgin-born guy gets killed and he's, he's buried, he comes back, he's going to heaven, he's going to come back on a white horse, like, this just sounds like, come on, like, how can you believe this? So to him, it was folly, right? But to, to uh, those who are being saved believers, we see, don't we see the power of God in what Christ did? We see glory and beauty, God's power and wisdom on display. So here's the question that we're asking this whole series. We were all born viewing the cross this way, weren't we? I mean, I can remember sitting in the back row of my church, Faith Presbyterian. My dad's preaching the gospel faithfully, verse by verse. I'm nine years old. I'm 12 years old. I'm 14 years old. What am I doing? I'm drawing pictures on the bulletin. Not, not, there's nothing wrong with doodling if you're doodling right now. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all kinds of other things. Uh, I, I'm not wanting to focus on the text that my dad, and my, you know, I, I, if my dad told a funny story, I would listen. If he certainly, if he told a family, if he told a family story, he said, one of my sons, and I'm like, okay, dad, well, who is this going to be? And it was usually going to be me, probably, if it was a bad, if it was a bad story. But so I would listen to her in the funny parts, but when it came to the actual substance of the message, it was folly to me. It did not excite me. It did not transform me. It was boring to me. I did not care. And then now, by God's grace, I'm, I'm answering my own question here, but now I do see glory in it. I see it as a moving, glorious thing. So what takes us from this state where the cross is folly to now where we're saved, the cross is the power of God? What is the decisive change that made, what, what made the decisive change? Okay, now you know what the answer is from the series, but let's just look at it for, for the sake of time. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs... And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, here it is again a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, verse 24 tells you what makes the difference. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is now what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. So, if you, if you, if you perceive that Christ is glorious right now in your life, if you see that he's powerful and glorious on the cross, that's to be attributed to God's call. God sovereignly called you. So who gets the credit for the fact that the gospel's no longer boring but radiating with splendor? The one who called. That's who gets the glory. It's, it's God's divine summons. Now, Greg, can you walk us through verses 26 uh, to the end of the chapter here? Yeah, let's read those, and then we'll, we'll talk through them. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, literally no flesh, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, what's interesting here, we noted, we noted this in Romans 9, mm -hmm. and it was something I had, not, I had not made the connection until just now as I was reading it. God's un, the unconditional election and the effectual call are so often linked. Oh, yeah. Because in Romans 9, he's talking about 
so that God's purpose of election mm. might stand, it depends on him who calls. Mm -hmm. So you've got choice and God's choice and God's calling. Same thing here. He says, consider your calling, but then he goes back to saying who God chose. Yep. I just found that found interesting connection there. But think about this. He's saying, consider your calling, this, this, this call to salvation, this call to new life that produced faith in you. Um, it has to be sovereign uh, based on what Paul's saying because God didn't give it to the ones that the world would say should receive it. And God was selective. And the majority of the people who, who received this were not, as he says, these majority were not powerful, not of noble birth, um, not strong, not wise. God didn't do that. God withheld this call from a lot of people in those types of categorizations um, and, and gave it to a different kind of people. What kind of people? Um, those who were not powerful. Those who were not of noble birth, as Paul says, God chose what is foolish. And why did he do that? To shame the wise. He chose what's weak. Why? To shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised in the world. Even the things that don't have existence, going back to Romans 4, um, the things that are not to bring to nothing, the things that are. And why did God do that? Why was God choosing and then calling who he did when he did? And you look at verse 29. The goal is, is so that no flesh, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then look at verse 30. It says, um, and because of him or by his doing or from him, you are in Christ Jesus. And then verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, again, God's call is the, the determinative factor here, not human wisdom, not human strength, not human social status or nobility. It's God's let me jump in on that. So think about this. If God had, this is so obvious when you say it out loud, but what if God had chosen only basically famous celebrities to be saved? He basically chose the rich. He left the poor in their, in their natural state. He chose attractive, athletic. He, just go through the whole list. Like everybody who the, the world considers at the top of the, the totem pole, if God chose those people and largely overlooked the poor and the downcast and those who are nothing in this world, would God be saying something untrue about the human value system? Yes, he would be saying that what God really cares about is what the world cares about. But instead, does God flip it exactly on its head? God says, okay, the world thinks wealth is the be all end all. Then are Christians across the world largely poor? Throughout history, usually, yes. If people think, okay, the most powerful and elite people, those are the people that you wanna be part of, like the, the famous, the elites, the rich people, are some of them saved? Some of them are saved, but are, the, are most of those people Christians? No, it's usually who? Those who hit rock bottom, right? Those who feel like their life is pointless and meaningless. They turn to Christ and they find Christ to be all that they need. So God is doing what he does in order to, up throw, to, to throw over the, the human value system and say, actually, I choose based on nothing but what is going to glorify me. I, I'm not making this choice based on uh, how the world uh, values things. We also want to say, like, if, if God only chose, like, the rich, the powerful, and the famous, everybody else who's not that would feel this burden that somehow I have to be that in order for God to call me and save me. Right. And, and God, you know, because, again, that's how humans think. The Pharisees fell into that trap. You know, they thought, man, God must really be blessing us because we've got money, we've got this, that, and the other. It's because we're so faithful. The regular people said, well, we don't have what they have, therefore we must not be faithful and it's like, like you said, God just, he overturns, he flips that paradigm on its head um, and, and does not operate according to the system of this world. And I, and I think there's a general principle we can take from that that I'll mention very briefly is, again, we've already talked about adjusting 
how we think, how we speak, to be to line up with Scripture, to be according to Scripture, we, we sometimes have to evaluate are the way we're thinking about people and God's right. work in people the way the world defines that or the way Scripture does. Yes. We always want to go back to Scripture and evaluate is the way I'm thinking about other people and the way God's going to work in them, is that based on how the world does or how Scripture does? And we have to be willing to, to change how we think, how we process, if Scripture leads us in a different direction. Tom Schreiner commenting on this text says this, calling here does not refer to one's vocation, but has to do with one's station in life when one was called to salvation. The good news about Christ crucified and risen is proclaimed to all, but it is only welcomed by those who are called. All are invited through the preached word, but only some are drawn by a call that creates faith. And uh, let me give, well, I'm going to skip over something here. Okay, for the sake of time, uh, turn with us now to 1 John and let's, let's look at chapter 2 first. 1 John chapter 2. And let, let me just t- try to take a second here, because I, I want to we'll spend the last 10 minutes on this, on this particular point, because I think it's really worth mentioning. We haven't said this precisely, I don't think, with clarity yet in the series. So 1 John 2, um, before we read any of the verses here, if you look at the screen, here is another way of saying the whole debate. So I don't think we've talked about this much yet, but here's another way to say this whole discussion. Does faith precede and enable our new birth, which is the way most American Christians talk about it? Like you believe and then you're born again. That's the way most people think about it in American Christianity. Or does the new birth precede and enable faith? Now, that may sound like a chicken and egg kind of question, but this is a really important question, okay? Because how you answer this question changes how you view God's involvement in your salvation. Okay, do you see the difference between the two options here? If in this view, if, if, if my faith comes before my new birth, then first of all, I can believe without the new birth, which is saying something pretty amazing, and it's also saying that I get the ultimate credit for my faith. Otherwise, if the Holy Spirit regenerates or causes the new birth first, and then it guarantees my faith, the Holy Spirit would get the credit there. Now, let's look at three verses. 1 John 2.29, I'm just going to read part of these verses for the sake of time. 1 John 2.29, it's also going to be on the screen. Look at this verse here. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, I I should just stay up for a second here because this is is really important. I got three verses and you got to follow the logic here to make sense out of what what we're going to try to say. This this verse is, is very easy to understand, okay? Would you agree with my interpretation? I believe this verse is saying, those who in the present tense are continuously practicing godliness and righteousness give evidence that they have been born again because the new birth creates a righteous life. I mean, I think that's pretty basic, right? So the, the, a continual ongoing practicing righteousness is proof that the new birth has already happened and that all our righteous conduct came as a result of our new birth. That's pretty straightforward. And the first, like the practicing righteousness is not what leads to being born of God. It's being born of God that leads to that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So it's very clear. The, does the righteousness come before the new birth in this verse? No, it comes as a result of the new birth, right? The evidence of the new birth is that we're practicing righteousness. That's pretty, that's pretty clear. Thank you, Greg. That's an important point. Now look at chapter, three, or chapter 4, verse 7. It's the same kind of an argument here. Whoever loves has been born of God. I'm just part of the verse. First John 4, 7. Do you see it's the same exact argument? Does love come before the new birth? Are we loving people and then we're born again? No. We're born again, and then the result is what? We love people. 
So our ongoing acts of loving God and neighbor is proof that we have already been born again. Everybody got that? Now, this is so simple, but it's going to really matter on this next one, okay? Because I will just tell you something. I'm not, a, I'm not a Greek expert, but I will tell you from listening to people who know the Greek very well, the Greek construction of these three verses is virtually identical. And if you're going to argue that the Greek works this way with these two verses, you have to argue it works the same way with the next verse. And this next verse is a mind blower. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. I'm just going to read part of the verse here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, you see that? Our righteous actions come after the new birth, and they're the proof of the new birth, right? Our love comes after the new birth, and it's the cause of the new birth, right? It comes, it comes as a result. Our faith comes where? It comes after the new birth. It's proof of the new birth. This is a, I think this verse says it as clearly as you possibly can. And according to Greek, all these three verses are constructed the same way. Listen, I, I was debating on whether to show this. Here's the Greek. I'm just going to put the Greek on the screen, okay? Here's the actual Greek of these three verses, okay? Now, just, just look at this. I, I'm not a Greek scholar, but just give me a second to say this here. So you got pos, which is all or every, pos, which is all or every, and pos, which is all or every. All three verses have all, same Greek word. And then it has some action. The one doing dikaiosunane, righteousness, has been born of him. So from him has been born, ex autu gagenitai. So that's how that verse says it here. All who love, you see agape right there, agapon. All who love, ek tu theu gagenitai, have of God been born. And then here, 1 John 5, 1, all, pas, Histuon is the word for believing. Those believing that Yesu esten ha Christos, those who believe Jesus is the Christ, ek tu theu gagenitai, exact same Greek words as this verse right here, 1 John 4, 7, exact same Greek construction. If you're going to say love is the result and proof of the new birth here, you have to say faith that Jesus is the Christ is the result of the new birth here. The Greek is identical between these two statements. So I think this is an overpowering argument that faith is actually the result of the new birth, not the cause. And here's how John Stott said it. The combination of the present tense, believes, and the perfect, has been born of God, is important. It shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause, of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result, and therefore the evidence, of our past experience of new birth. Now, Greg, any, any words on why this is a significant? If someone says, I don't, what does this matter, that faith is the, uh, is the result of the new birth? Why does that matter? Well, it... I'm going to go, go practical here because yeah. you were talking about this. It brought something up. It, it will radically affect how we view preaching the gospel. I mean, you think about this. If, if um, faith is the result of the new birth, regeneration, God gives us new life, therefore we believe. And there's not like a separation. Like the moment you're regenerated, you're going to believe. Like there's no per people walking out there regenerated for two, three weeks or, you know, two or three years, and then suddenly they start believing. It's an instantaneous thing in terms of like if we were to look at it, but it, it's kind of like one illustration is like when a baseball hits a window, you know, the window immediately breaks at this time the ball hits it, right. but one has to logically come before the other. There's no time gap, but there's, one yeah, does cause the other. Exactly. And so... Um, if the new birth precedes faith, then we can preach the gospel with great confidence. We don't have to result to manipulation. We don't have to result to, you know, sales tactics, all this stuff. Uh, we can just call people to repent and believe faithfully as, as often as we can and trust that God's going to work through that uh, to bring new birth and therefore faith and repentance. Flip that around. If the new birth is dependent on your faith, 
Mm -hmm. If that's true, then you see American evangelicalism, evangelicalism for the last hundred plus years. Because what's the big deal? If faith comes before the new birth, then you can use any and every tactic available to man to try to manipulate people to make a decision for Jesus and pray that prayer. So because, hey, you got them to do it. Once you do that prayer, you're saved. You're born again right then and there. Um, and, and Charles so, Finney, remember Charles oh, Finney goodness, a couple yes. hundred years ago, he popularized this whole thing. And Charles Finney was very much an Arminian, but even, I mean, he was way out there on a lot of stuff. He was beyond Arminianism, but he, was, he was far beyond Arminianism in terms of he was in a, not a great place theologically. But he would have something called the, the anxious bench up at the front of his little processions where he would set up a you know, tent and uh, there, were, there was sawdust on, on the ground. He would call it the sawdust trail, you know, walking the sawdust trail, which was walking the aisle. And he was the one that perfected this aisle walking thing that we've seen. I, I know Billy Graham and others have made it very, very popular, but Charles Finney really is the one that popularized this aisle walking thing. And he would have a thing called the anxious bench up at front. And he would have certain kinds of music playing intentionally to manipulate people's emotions to make a decision. And he would bring people up if they were anxious about their salvation. He would sit them at the front where everyone knew this person's anxious about their salvation. He puts all this social pressure on them, makes it very public, and then is pressuring them to pray the prayer and make a decision. And then he would have the town drunk up in the, you know, in the anxiety booth. How anxious would you be in the anxious booth? I would be terrified up there. And so then, then he tells this town drunk you know, to receive Christ, and the town drunk is crying, and he receives Christ, and then a month later, he's back at the bar getting drunk again. And they, they would talk about the troubles with this, like, what do you do with this? But he, he kind of gave us this version of the aisle-walking perspective, and I think, I think it was well-intentioned. I think it was also extremely misguided, and I think it led to, can we be honest, I mean, in history, the last 200 years, Hundreds of thousands, I think millions of false conversions happened because people walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they, they signed a card, they wrote a date down at the front of their Bible. None of their heart changed. None of their affections changed. They have no love for the Word of God. They're just as bored with Jesus as they've ever been. But my golly, they signed that card at that event, and they know that they're never going to doubt it because they walked the aisle, they, they signed that card. And we're saying we want to argue more for a deeper I hope more biblical view of regeneration, which is a yeah. radical change of life from the bottom of our heart up until the outcome of our life. And that's not something we can snap our fingers and make happen. It's something divinely wrought by, by God, the Holy Spirit. Well, and, and when we preach just the gospel and we call people to faith and repentance and we don't try to manipulate emotions, um, we guard ourselves from so much of the compromise that we've seen in the modern-day evangelical church where we try to get this almost mere... And I'm, I'm, I love C.S. Lewis. I love mere Christianity right, right, in a right. lot of ways. But it's called like a mere Christianity approach. Like you, you reduce, you take away as many gospel elements as you can to make the gospel as unoffensive as you can make it so that hopefully you can get more people to believe it. Um, and at the end of the day, you don't really have the gospel anymore. You have a, a sentimental some kind of emotional appeal to, to satisfy your desire for fulfillment in life. And well, hey, guess what? That's what Jesus does. So trust in him, you'll be fulfilled. Oh, guess what? You're saved now, born again. Let's baptize you, bring you into the church. Um, and, and it is just, it, it is sad how many Christians think that evangelism is all the tricks. Like the, the better the salesman you are, um, the better the presentation you give, the more likely people are to believe. I mean, we want to speak clearly. We want to be you know, we want to we want to communicate the word accurately. We want to, you know, everything we can to, to make this clear. But the goal is to make this clear, not to be savvy in our presentation. Um, and so I had somewhere else I was going to go, but it just flittered away. Well, hold on for next week because we are, we are out of time here. But I'm going to pray for us and then we will we will wrap up and we'll get to perseverance next Sunday. Lord willing, let's let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I, I do uh, ask that we would be 
uh, gracious with these issues. I know that these are extraordinarily important, and I pray, God, that we would be able to speak clearly and truthfully and biblically about what the new birth is and about how the new birth, which is of your spirit, uh, creates the faith and creates the repentance that we so desperately need to truly desire you and to follow you and to hate our sin. God, I pray that this would be a humbling truth that you intervened, you brought about the new birth, and as an immediate result, we, by your divine grace, repented and believed in the gospel, and that the credit ultimately goes to you, and that we can praise you and worship you all the more for the fact that we are Christians at all, and that we are Christians even in this very moment. So God, continue to hold on to us because we need your uh, grace day by day, and I pray that this service coming up would be honoring to you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.